My name is Mark, and this is my wife, JJ, and we have the privilege of reading uh, this morning from Mark 10, verses 35 to 45. Then Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do... Sorry, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. If we have not met, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Heights. It's my privilege to be with you today, whether you're joining us in person or online. We begin today with a quote from a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau from France in the 18th century, writing these words about the Christians he saw as so backwards and inhibiting the progress of the French Republic. He says this, True Christians are made to be slaves. They know it and are hardly aroused by it. You can feel the disdain, the vitriol, the hatred of Christianity as something that is outdated and backwards. What's fascinating is you could also read this as a commentary on the exact passage we just read. In some ways, this is an accurate recapture of what Jesus himself has said. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave, at all, slave of all. Somehow, this message is something that is both beautiful to some and disgusting to others. This is what early Christians referred to as the scandal of Jesus. By this, they do not picture scantily clad women, teenagers saying, scandalous. They don't picture embezzlement, moral failures. No, what they say is that at the heart of Jesus is something that can only be understood in a place where it is so strange, so different, so radically new that it is an upending of all cultural values. Strength through weakness, wisdom through foolishness, life through death. Today, Glory through serving. To understand the good news of Jesus, to come close to the transformative power of the king, is to understand understand something that can at the same time be either revered or reviled. And today we come to a passage that is just that. In our day of independence, of anti-authority, of the platform, we come to a passage that tells us not to be served, but to serve. 
And this passage is the one that will guide us into meeting with Jesus, becoming the active hands and feet of Jesus, and ultimately transforming our day in the weeks and months to come if we take it seriously. So as we jump in here, this is a passage that begins with Jesus and his followers on the way to Jerusalem, a path to glory. Many of them would have anticipated that this would be where Jesus would lay claim to the throne of Israel and, in fact, all creation. And a couple of his followers want to take this moment to pitch something for themselves. Read chapter 10, verse 35. If you have not already turned there, go to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 35. It says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (sighs) What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. We get to see the brashness and the arrogance of James and John here, but what might be more challenging is to recognize that they posture themselves the exact way that we posture ourselves before the king of all creation. Think of your own prayer life. Is your prayer life marked predominantly by praising God? By thanking him for all that he has done? Is it marked by confession of sin? Is it marked by praying out the Psalms of Israel, the words of Scripture back to God? Or is it marked predominantly by a laundry list of requests, by coming before him and saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of us, whatever we ask of you. We picture God as some kind of genie who is ultimately his goal or his purpose in life is to just do whatever we ask of him. And as soon as we begin to recognize this, there can be some ideas about maybe we should do something a little bit differently. Maybe we should stop this. But Jesus does not take that posture. Instead, he invites the request. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus does not stop us from praying these prayers. In fact, our first point today is simply this. Tell Jesus about the glory you desire. Jesus is not interested in you hiding your deepest longings and shutting them away somewhere else. He wants you to bring them to him. I think my favorite example of this is from a hero of the faith in the 4th and 5th century named Augustine, one of the most influential Christian thinkers of all time, who had these words to say, this prayer to God, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Right now it feels pretty good, so if you could delay that to a future time, that would be awesome. This is the same type of thing as when we pray for a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or we ask the Lord to help us get to our appointment on time even though we ended up leaving 10 minutes later than we should have and and we knew traffic would be bad but we ignored it. This is the type of posture that we often come to God in prayer in and Jesus does not reject it. In fact, he invites it. See, we don't graduate from honest prayer. We actually grow through it the importance of not hiding these things because it is in the space where Jesus can redirect these prayers to something else. An example of this in my own life is a number of years ago, I realized that my number one desire actually was that the kingdom of God would come. It actually was my number, number one desire. But 
directly underneath that was the desire that the world would know it was Nathan Archer who made it happen. <laughs> Number one desire, yes, I want you, Jesus. But like, as long as everybody knows Nathan Archer did it. Now, what I could have done would be just to ignore that, hide that, allow that to fester in my soul and secrecy and hiddenness. Or what I could have done is bring it to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is honestly where I'm at right now. Can you change this? Can you transform this? Because this is exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to hear the honest request of James and John to sit at the right and the left of him in his glory, which is a good thing. But he's going to redirect it into a radically different path. So continue to read with me in verse 38. You don't know what you are asking. Jesus said, which there's a longer point here about how God probably responds to many of our prayer requests. You don't know what you're asking. But continuing on in James and John's story, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. James and John ask Jesus for glory, and he, instead he tells them about a cup and a baptism. What's happening here? Well, in order to understand what's happening here, we need to understand first how James and John would have heard this, and then also how Mark intends us, his audience, to hear it. So let's dig into that. The cup in Jesus' day was an ancient image of someone's lot in life, what God had set before them. Jesus' cup to this point in his life looked pretty good. It looked like popularity and power. Popularity in the sense that Jesus was one of the most famous teachers in the land, capable of gathering thousands around him. And it looked like power because Jesus was the most powerful human ever. He was capable of healing the sick, the blind, the deaf, the paralyzed, casting out demons walking on water, turning a couple of leftover loaves of bread into food for thousands. This is the cup of Jesus. And the baptism, well, if you wanted to, you could go back to Mark chapter 1 and see that at the baptism of Jesus, heaven was torn open, a dove descended upon him, and a voice came and said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is probably what James and John had in mind when they were asked, can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the, baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? They probably looked at each other and said, uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. This was the cup and the baptism of Jesus. At least it was according to James and John. But Mark isn't writing to James and John. Nor is it fair to say that he's writing to us either, because I think we tend to make the same mistake as they would have. We tend to view Jesus primarily through the lens of resurrection, primarily through the lens of life and affirmation of power and popularity and blessing. But Mark wasn't writing to us. He was writing about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, at which point the cup and the baptism of Jesus had been radically reinterpreted. Baptism was no longer just about the affirmation of the Father upon us, though it continued to be that. It was also an image of death. 
If you were interested, you could go to one of the earliest Christians. His name, his name is Paul. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, Paul understands the image of baptism, which we just witnessed, to be an image of dying to self, being buried under the waters, that you might then be raised to new life. But it was an image of death. Similarly, the cup of Jesus had been interpreted as a suffering unto death. If you were interested, you could go a couple chapters over to Mark chapter 14 and see Jesus having a meal with his followers, a cup in front of him and saying, this cup is the blood of the covenant. It is my blood. It was an image of death. And the most radical one we have not even touched on yet, James and John asked to sit at the left and the right of Jesus in his glory. This is an image, I like to think of Lord of the Rings to understand this image. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, one, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Two, think of some medieval throne room where you see the king's throne, the most grand one, and then on either side you see two other smaller thrones. And whoever sits on those smaller thrones is second only to the king in terms of influence and authority throughout the kingdom. This is what James and John are asking for. Jesus' response is a bit cryptic. In verse 40, he says, "'To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared.'" And our question is, well, for whom have they been prepared? Mark doesn't tell us yet, but he's dropped a seed. He gives us this phrase, right and left of Jesus, and is only going to use it one other time in chapter 15. So turn with me to chapter 15, starting at verse 22, to see who Mark intends us to understand is sitting at the right and left of Jesus in his glory. Mark 15, starting at verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written, in, the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Mark is intending for us to see that if you want to join Jesus in his glory, it means joining him in his crucifixion. It means joining him in his death. So yes, we are on the path to Jerusalem right now as this story is happening. James and John have asked for the glory of Jesus and he has redirected their attention so that they understand the path of glory is a path of death. Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup I drink, but this cup will be a cup of death. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but this will be a baptism of death. These are the famous words, I think, or... or they remind me of the famous words of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor who famously resisted the Nazi regime and lost his life as a result, who says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. See, understand this, life with Jesus is about resurrection, it's about life, it's about power, it's about healing and rescue and peace, it's all those things, but the path to those things is a path of death. And Jesus is here going to explain a little bit further what this looks like as we continue on in verse 41. 
When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus takes their desire for glory, reorients it around his death, and then says the genuine pathway, if you want this, is to serve, not to lord authority over, not to seek power and prestige and popularity, but to serve. Perhaps we should adjust our previous phrase then to say this, the path of glory is a path of service. It is also a path of death, but it doesn't just mean that following Jesus looks like persecution and martyrdom. It certainly is that. But the path of glory of following Jesus into his resurrection, into his life, also looks like making casseroles for someone when they are grieving. Both those things are part of following Jesus. The path of glory is a path of service. Jesus refers in this example to the Gentile authorities, an example that would have been good for his earliest listeners, but for us 2,000 years later probably means very little. But to help us understand, Jesus and his followers were living in a day that was marked by what's called an honor and shame context. In that, peer pressure for us today is like the epitome of what you should resist. Peer pressure back then was something that actually told you whether or not you were on the right path. If everyone around you told you that you were good, you were in fact good. If everyone around you told you that you were bad, you were in fact bad. That is how you were defined. So then what would happen is there was a competitive game almost to try and gather as much honor from your peers and those around you as possible. There were patron-client relationships. If you were a person of influence, you wanted to have many clients around you who would tell you how good you were. If you were one of the lower people in the class, you wanted to have a grand patron that you could point to to show you how good you were. If you were a homeowner, you wanted to have your atrium filled with honored guests. If you were a guest, you wanted to be seated at the highest seat in the, t- in the room. You wanted the preferred spot. It, many of them, many of these people, especially if they were, edu- were educated, might have even been familiar with these words of Cicero, Rome's greatest philosopher, who wrote this a couple decades before the time of Jesus. It says this, nature has made us enthusiastic seekers after honor. And once we have caught some glimpse of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to go through in order to secure it. Cicero did not say this, by the way, with sarcasm or cynicism. He said this as the way that should things, as things should be. You should be seeking after honor. How radical, then, that Jesus comes to say, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. How radical, then, in a culture where the goal was to outdo one another in getting honor, we read from this guy, Paul, who we mentioned, that he's interpreting this to say, no, actually what you should do, you should outdo one another in showing honor. It's the words of Paul, one of the earliest Christian leaders. It's a radical reorientation. It's a scandal, if you will. It's an alteration of the deep values of the day. 
And by the way, our day continues to rage against this. I think it's captured in the great English epic, Paradise Lost by John Milton. The beginning of it, we see Satan cast out of heaven in hell and deciding what to do moving forward. He's observing his surroundings, this hellscape, and figuring out what should I do next. And this is what he decides as he speaks to his fellow devils. Here, and this is him referring to hell, here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I hope one day I am cool enough to write a line as good as that. That is an awesome line. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. This is the epitome and the ethos of Satan in John Milton's Paradise Lost. But get this. As I said, this is one of the most influential English texts ever, which means it's continued to be studied in universities today. Current interpreters who look at Paradise Lost consider Satan not just to be the protagonist, which he is a very significant character in the story. You could fairly argue that he is the protagonist of the story. They don't just consider him to be the protagonist, but the hero. They consider his striving after independence, his authentic response against the authority of heaven as noble and just. They see in him the appropriate human pathway forward. We rage against the words of Jesus. We rage against this this invitation to serve. And we do this. This is not just other people who do this. We do this. In verse 41, we read this. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. There'd be two possible ways to read this. On the one hand, it could be them disappointed in James and John for having that request, offering a rebuke of sorts. Another way to understand this, though, would be to say that they were a bit peeved that James and John thought of asking this question before they did. And in general, I think it's not a good practice to try and guess psychologically at what's going on in the minds of the uh, the characters in scripture. But I think we're given a clue here. Jesus could have given his explanation of what death looks like in the form of service simply to James and John. But instead he waited till all the disciples were together to then explain, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He knew that this was a message for everyone. James and John were just the ones who got caught. But this was a message for everyone, which means it's a message for everyone, which means that it's a message for us in this room that Jesus' invitation is to serve, to become a servant. And I think there's something beautiful about this, and what I want to invite us into is a simple invitation Here's today's invitation. Consider serving as a spiritual discipline. Here's what I mean by that. Spiritual disciplines are generally those things where we position ourselves to be the active hands and feet of Jesus, to meet with Jesus, to become like Jesus. They are, in other words, the practices and habits so that we can follow Jesus in our day. There's been a huge resurgence in the conversation around spiritual disciplines. Some influential authors around it have been Richard Foster, have been Dallas Willard, and probably in the last decade, the biggest influence has been a pastor named John Mark Comer. In this rise in talking about spiritual disciplines, there's been a huge emphasis on the introspective ones, the ones I like, 
silence, solitude, journaling, prayer. And what ends up happening, I think for many of you in this room, you might, be, you might resonate with this, those are things that sound like death to you, that you, f- you find yourself miserable in doing. Jesus is inviting you to realize when you serve, when you help someone move, when you make a casserole, when you sit and listen to someone, when you give somebody a ride, you are also in the presence of God. You are meeting with him. You are becoming his active hands and feet. That does not mean that prayer and journaling and scripture are less valuable. It just means that for some of you, you actually need to be released from the fact that for you it feels like following Jesus is impossible. There actually are some things that come to you much more naturally that Jesus wants to use you in. Now, it's important to recognize here that serving is a spiritual discipline. It's possible to serve in ways that are not spiritual disciplines. This was me last week when I knew that I was going to be preaching in this, and I decided I'm going to put this into practice. I was doing some dishes, and I knew that I had to clean the barbecue, which I had left for probably a year from cleaning. And I, <laughs> honestly, it probably took like two and a half hours. I was like scrubbing out the grease, ruining a cloth, throwing out the cloth, scrubbing out the grease again, ruining another cloth, going. And as I'm doing this, all I'm thinking is like, man, I'm so good at this. I'm like, I'm like the best servant ever. Like, nobody serves as hard as me. I'm, and then so like, as my, my ego's inflating, I'm also getting angry at all these other peasants who don't serve as hard as I do. I'm just like, I'm really the greatest in the kingdom of God. I was certainly not the active hands and feet of Jesus in that moment. Nor was I the next day when my wife thanked me for vacuuming the, the, the house. And <laughs> without skipping a beat, I said, Yeah, and did you notice that I also tidied the living room too? (laughs) My need for recognition overpowered my desire to serve. These are not things of what service looks like, but service is, in fact, a way to be the active hands and feet of Jesus. It's a way to participate in the life of God. And the goal is that this would not be an accidental thing we do, but something that we would do intentionally, stepping into it. Because right now I know there's many moments where I intentionally choose not to serve. I know that there's moments where I walk past someone on the street and I can feel that tug. Hey, Nathan, you don't have to like devote your entire life in this moment, but you could at least have a conversation with them. You could at least ask them how they're doing. And I know that frequently I just walk on by. And I also know that that's not going to change just by living my life as I currently am. What I need are certain habits that are going to form me into a person of service. These are called spiritual disciplines. What I want to invite us to do is, in the coming weeks, think of a way, a consistent habit that you can serve. This could be in our church. You could volunteer within our women's ministry, men's ministry, worship, tech teams, kids, youth, etc. This could be in, your, in our city. It could be volunteering at a soup kitchen or mentoring at-risk youth. It could be baking cookies on a weekly basis for your neighbors, getting to know them, serving them. It could be in your home, committing to be the one to clean the toilet every week. It could be also just sitting down with your wife or husband or roommate regularly and asking them how they are doing. But it has to be an intentional practice. It can't be accidental. Holiness doesn't doesn't happen accidentally. It happens intentionally in seeking Jesus. Because this ultimately is what Jesus did, not just sometimes, but all the time. We read 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. I hear that challenge, and specifically the word slave, and think I am nowhere near that, nor am I even sure that I want to be near that. Of course, 2,000 years ago, uh, Mark wouldn't have been aware of the transatlantic slave trade and the horrors that were experienced then, but slavery still was an awful experience for people. It's at this exact moment that Jesus turns to himself as the example. After saying that you must be the slave of all, Jesus turns and says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He lived these things out. Let me just show you some of the examples. I started today by mentioning that Jesus is on the path to Jerusalem, the path of anticipated glory. Right from the get-go, if you were to go earlier in the passage, starting at verse 32, you would notice that Jesus, as they set out for Jerusalem, tells them, tells his followers, that he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. He lets them know that he's going to be treated as not just a servant, but a slave in the lowest scum of the earth. And then directly after this passage, still on the path to Jerusalem, still on the path to glory, they come across a blind beggar who's calling out for Jesus' help. Everyone else is trying to push Bartimaeus aside, but Jesus says, come to me. And Jesus heals him, and he serves him. See, for Jesus, the path of glory was a path of death. For Jesus, the path of glory was a path of service. And again, this did not just happen sometimes. This was all the time. We learn elsewhere that Jesus, when his death ultimately happened, it was because he had been sold for the exact price of a Hebrew slave. We learn that he died on a cross, the death that was tended to be reserved for slaves. Jesus was sold as a slave. He was treated as a slave. He was beaten as a slave. He died as a slave. And here's the scandal. This is the thing that allowed him to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the thing that allowed him to tear us from a life of death and destruction, of selfishness and despair into a life of hope and healing and resurrection. This is the scandal. A slave died to rescue you. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, it should. It's a scandal. It feels so backwards and so twisted, but this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. That the king of all creation would willingly come to earth in weakness and in frailty, in service, in slavery, despite any type of authority he might have had, and give his life as a ransom for many, tearing us out of the land of darkness into the land of light. This is the story of Jesus. This is the scandal. This is good news. And it feels so strange and backwards, and it is. And that's why it's the path to life. This brings us to communion. Communion is an image that had been used for the earliest church and has now been used for almost 2,000 years to remember Jesus' death and sacrifice. The literal bread for us, a styrofoam wafer, The bread represented Jesus' body, a way to remember the very body 
that was mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. The juice, representation of his blood that was poured out, his life given for ours. But here's the important thing we need to remember as we step into communion here. Communion was not simply, simply something to remember intellectually and think about. That word in Hebrew, understanding, to remember, is about participating in it as if it is happening right now. To remember the death of Jesus is to say, I am walking this path with you even now, Jesus. I take this bread, your body, and say, I will follow you on this path of glory even though it's a path of death. I take this blood, your blood poured out, this juice for us, knowing it's the path of glory, but it's going to look like the path of service. I do these things. As we take communion today, what you're doing as you participate in this is saying, I want to participate in your life, Jesus, by participating in your death and in serving. So what I want to simply do is just take about 20 seconds here in silence just to reflect and ask, Lord, how are you calling me to participate in your death and in your service today? Just take 20 seconds here to, think, to sit on that. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You walk the path of death, knowing that the path of glory is still on the way. Let's drink together. Father, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, and today we ask that you would teach us how to walk in this path that is too great for us, but you, Jesus, already accomplished it. Give us the power to follow in your footsteps. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This time I'd like to invite the prayer teams forward, and as always, you can come for prayer for any reason, but maybe a few specific invitations if you sense within your hearts that kind of like twisted desire that you just want to bring to God, that you're like, hey, this is what I'm wrestling with, I would love to confess that and just say, Lord, shape me into someone who is formed by your desire. Secondly, if you want to become a person of service and say, Lord, Lord I want to serve you and I want to serve others the way that you did, come and receive prayer for that as well.